0: Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. That's Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking, saying, they are filled with new wine. May God bless the reading of his word today. Please be seated.
1: In making a movie, there is a uh, phrase for one particular technique that is used, and it is in medias res, in medias res. And that's Latin, which means in the midst of things. So this in medias res, this in the middle of things technique takes place when you watch a movie and in that opening scene, it opens with this dramatic event, something that's going on that lacks any context whatsoever. You're just dropped, boom, right into the middle of something. It opens, you're watching everything happen. You don't know why it's happening. You don't have any sense of of what led up to that. It can even be a little bit overwhelming for the viewer. And uh, maybe to even use the uh, language here in Acts, you find yourself amazed and astonished. And then what happens is after the scene ends that really grabs your attention and all of this stuff is happening, then the movie jumps back in time and then starts to unfold what it is that has taken place that led up to that moment so that you can digest, so that you can kind of assimilate everything that you saw at the beginning. Well, in our passage today, starting in Acts chapter 2 that Gerald just read, that's essentially what we're experiencing. I would even say that it just turns out that because um, our pastor Nick has been preaching for a couple of months in a row, I, I think it even adds to that because we're coming into this Um, with with a good separation from chapter 1, but that, even that, even if we were rolling right into it directly uh, from last week, I think what we see taking place here and what we just read about this scene in chapter 2 still has that same effect going on. You have a group of men that are in a house and while they're in the house there's a sound like so so stick with me on this on this idea of this in medias res there's a sound like a violent rushing wind that fills the whole house there's something like divided tongues of fire that come to rest on top of them they're filled with the holy spirit they're spontaneously given the the ability to speak different languages perhaps even Numerous languages at the same time. And the sound drew so much attention that a crowd of people within the city, people representing every nation under heaven, were bewildered because they heard what was being said in their own language. I mean, that's that opening scene. All of these things are happening. And if that is the opening scene, if that's all you really know what's happening, you would probably have the same reaction as the people did that were right there and that heard it take place and that witnessed it take place. And you can see what that reaction is down in verse 12, where it says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? And so that's our goal today, is to answer that question. We've got that scene, we have all of these things happening, and so we want to answer the question, what does this mean? So we're going to use the same technique. We're going to freeze that scene, we're going to go back in time, and we're going to see what it is that took place before That leads up to this scene and that gives us a better idea of why this is all taking place. And I would just say at the outset that if you have looked at this passage before and in some way thought it was prescriptive, meaning that there's something about the way that this unfolds and what comes out of it can be replicated, that you can read this and go, hey, maybe if we do A or we do B, then we are going to have the experience of X and Y. Namely, is there something in this passage that can be replicated so that we, too, can speak in tongues, so that we, too, can be, can be slain in the Spirit, or, or, or something like those things that somehow that this passage of scripture is prescriptive for us today, then you're going to miss the mark wildly. And I hope to be able to show that to you. And the way that I'm going to show that to you is because it is descriptive, not prescriptive, but descriptive of something that happened that is a one-time occurrence. And while it is a lasting occurrence and it is something that means a lot to us today, it's Descriptive in that sense and has lasting significance, but it only happened one time. So my hope is that in just a little bit, when we return back, we're going to go back in time, and when we return back to Acts chapter 2 and we come back to this scene, that you will see the connection between the past and the present. And when I say the present, I mean the present as it relates to uh, Acts chapter 2 and, and Pentecost here. And that there will be, for you, greater spiritual maturity. That's the goal. Kind of a big goal, but that's what we're aiming for. We want to see what does this mean, and that as a result of knowing what this means, that there's going to be greater spiritual maturity, and I would even go further than that, that the secret and hidden wisdom of God would be revealed to you because God has prepared that for those that love him. So I'll ask you now, do you want to understand the secret and hidden wisdom of God in Scripture? Not a rhetorical question. Do you want to understand the secret and hidden wisdom of God in Scripture? Okay. All right. Then let's do it. Okay. As we flash back to the Old Testament events that lead up to this, I'm gonna add one more layer. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at two different events, but we're going to look at them backward in time. So in other words, when we, as we look at the two, the first one, we've gotta go back in time a little bit. And then when we look at the second one, we're gonna go even further back because that's the way that it plays out in Acts chapter two. Now, the first thing to uh, kind of get your, get, get your wits about you, is that the reason that these people were even coming together, you can see it right here in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived. So that's, that's why they are there together, is they're there to celebrate Pentecost. So I'll even add in, in case, um, because at the end of chapter 1, remember we looked at the reconstitution of the 12. Remember, they chose Matthias, and they went through that exercise to uh, to choose Matthias to replace Judas. And so when you get to chapter 2 and you say, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, there might be a, um, a temptation to think that they are the 12, like, oh, they're, they're talking about the apostles. But I would suggest that it's probably a much larger group because if you just look back a few verses in Acts 1.15, remember the context in which the uh, Matthias was chosen. In 15, uh, Acts one fifteen, it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So you have this company of persons about 120 where everything takes place with the apostles. Now you get to Acts 2 verse 1 where it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So we've got most likely our 120 that are there together in the house in one place. Why are they there? They are there to celebrate Pentecost. Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Weeks. It has a couple different names there, and it comes from Exodus chapter 19. Um, And the purpose of the Feast of Weeks, the purpose of Pentecost was to celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, our pastor Nick is currently going through Exodus. In fact, I think he's coming up pretty close to that very event, So he's going to reveal more of the details as it relates to what's going on with Israel, with the Jews, as they receive that. However, this is what you can know is that Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, was established to celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And then there are more details given about it in both Exodus 34 and and in Leviticus 23 that talks specifically about this festival. So if you would be willing to take your Bibles and turn back to Leviticus, third book there, Leviticus chapter 23, and go to verses 15 and 16. Now, I'm only quoting two verses, but I want you to turn there because there are more details that go on below it, and you can just look there for yourself to see what I'm talking about here in just a second. But in Leviticus 23, Israel is, is uh, given more detail about this Feast of Weeks, which has also come to be known as Pentecost. So starting right there at verses 15 and 16, it reads, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. From the day that you were brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days, 5-0, 50 days, to the day. See how specific it is. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. And so this whole, uh, this, uh, this reference to it being to the day, 50 days after, after Passover is where that term Pentecost even comes from. It's the reference to the 50. That's why they're meeting at that particular time. And what takes place during that time, this is the harvest time of the year. So they're, they're reaping their crops. And so what ends up happening is during this Feast of Weeks, during the Pentecost celebration, it is all about giving up the first fruits of what it is that they've har- harvested. There are extensive offerings. So if you were to, to uh, we're not going to read all the subsequent verses after 15 and 16, but you can glance down there because what you'll see is that there are wave offerings, there are offerings of new grain, there are offerings of baked bread, there are lambs sacrificed as a peace offering, there are drink offerings, there are food offerings, there's a male goat as a sin offering, and it's all Designed, the entirety of this thing is designed to celebrate the first and best to the Lord. This is a first fruits celebration. God says, This is the timing, 50 days to the day, 50 days after uh, seven Sabbaths plus one after Passover. And it's going to be this enormous celebration that focuses on the first fruits the first and best being offered to the Lord. Now, as I mentioned, the purpose um, uh, originally of them doing this, of bringing the first and best to the Lord, is because they are remembering, they're celebrating the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And I want you now to turn with me to Exodus 19, or you can just listen to me read it either way, but I want to point out for you Now, we're going back just a little bit. So that's the celebration that we just read about. But in Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19, so Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the law. Listen to what took place the first time when that law was given. Okay, so this is what they're celebrating. And follow with me in Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire, The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So, when we consider the fact that in the original Passover, when it was very first instituted, there was a Passover lamb that was sacrificed in Egypt— And it was sacrificed so that judgment would be averted from that household. Then they go through the exodus and are delivered. And now, as a newly constituted people in the wilderness, a separated people, God gave them this scene that we just read. God gave them the law with a loud trumpet blast accompanied by Yahweh himself, descending in fire on that mountain. Now, if you think forward to the Gospels, in the Gospels, the Lamb of God himself was slain. Judgment was averted from a newly constituted and separated people of God. That new people, the church that is established, that is coming about at this time in Acts, are participants in a greater exodus. So now think about how all of these things are being connected based on a historical instruction of Levitical law. So the men involved in Acts chapter 1 are in this house for the purpose of celebrating Pentecost because they are obeying the Levitical law that was given when the Jews were in the wilderness, 50 days after the Passover. And in this case, though, it's the Passover lamb, it's Jesus that was sacrificed, and now it's these newly constituted people, the church, that represent Every nation under heaven that are meeting in Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating what they think, at least they're there to celebrate, what they were told to celebrate, was the gift of the law. And this Acts 2 group, while keeping that Levitical law, get a sound of a mighty rushing wind and with fire descending on them, receive a new gift. They receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit and if you think through a distinction as well is that God descended on that mountain to meet with Moses who was a representative of God's people but God's people were not allowed to touch the mountain if they were in, in Exodus it says that if the even though they were called out of the camp and called to approach the mountain if they were to touch the mountain They would be destroyed. And instead, the only one that could go on the mountain was Moses. He served as their priest. He served as their representative. And now, in Acts, after these men have come together, God descends on fire, meets with them, descends on them individually, and gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. At Sinai, they're given instructions about how to build a tabernacle so that God can meet with them in a special way. And in Acts chapter 2, God descends to tabernacle in them himself. So the first answer to the question, what does this mean, is that the people are given a better gift. And in fact, I I have to point this out, is that, when you start looking at what God was doing all the way at the very beginning when he instituted the Feast of Weeks, and you noticed how specific he was about when it was going to take place, when was it? It says it's the seventh Sabbath after the Passover, plus one. That's the 50. Seven Sabbaths, seven times seven is 49, plus one, 50. If it's the day after the Sabbath, that means it is the first day of the week. From the very beginning, when Pentecost was instituted, it was always pointing toward the first day of the week. Jesus was the first fruit. Jesus was the firstborn of the dead, and he was resurrected on the first day of the week. What does this mean? 1,500 years of celebrating Pentecost was all a rehearsal for the Pentecost celebration that we read about in Acts chapter 2. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit who would dwell in his children when they gathered together on Sunday, the first day day of the week. Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right. Well, that's the first event, is that giving of that gift, the, the, this Pentecost celebration and looking back at that first event, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and how it comes to, the, to, uh, to, to fruition, how it's uh, made complete right here in Acts chapter 2. Oh, but there's more because we have to cover verses 5 to 11 here. So visualize this with me, because we're jumping back even further in time. In fact, we're going all the way back to the beginning. And we're going to move forward from there. In Genesis 1, God created a land and a people, right? He brought about creation itself. And in fact, in bringing about creation He brought order to the creation, and when we read about the creation account, we can see how it unfolds and how God is bringing increasing order to the creation that he brought into being. And then he creates man, he creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them a job. And what is their job? Their job is to multiply, their job is to subdue, and their job is to have dominion for the purpose of expanding the garden. That's their job. Expand the kingdom. God has his own people. He has a land. He's given them a portion of it, and their job is to multiply, their job is to subdue, and their job is to have dominion. They are to expand the garden. We know what happens because in Genesis 3, they failed. Sin enters the world. It progresses from there to Genesis 6 to the point where it says, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So even though God had his original plan of having a specific people that were designed or that were tasked with expanding the kingdom, After that failure, sin became so rampant that he went through the um, exercise of of rebooting the whole thing through a flood, sparing only a remnant. That remnant was Noah. So again, you keep moving forward, and you get to Genesis 10. And in Genesis 10, what starts as Noah's family line, and you start to read this, you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they beget, and that one beget that, and that one beget that, and you have this lineage, right? But what happens is that what starts as a genealogy, what starts as just a family line, pops, son, you know, grandson, and it goes right on down the line, very quickly turns into the naming of nations. In fact, if you have a study Bible, I would not be surprised at all. In the back of your Bible, if you have some maps, one of those maps is entitled Table of Nations. And it lists and it shows, you know, in the map, the geography of the different nations. And those nations are tied directly to the names of those that came from Noah's family line. So here's the question What happened that went from a family operation to nations? It went from family line to a table of nations. Well, what's listed there in chapter 10, we get the answer to that question in Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, is our second event that ties directly to Acts chapter 2. Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. So again, just as I referenced in Genesis 6, Genesis uh, 11 rolls around. We now have widespread sin, idolatrous sin, to the point where they are completely disobeying God. They are not only disobeying God, they are doing the exact opposite of what God told them to do, um, to multiply, to expand. Instead, they create a city for themselves. They build a tower uh, to make a name for themselves, to try and get in contact with the heavenly beings. They're doing absolutely everything wrong. And in fact, now, listen to the verbiage from Genesis chapter 11, where this takes place. In Genesis 11, verses 7 to 9, God, uh, this is God speaking, the, our Trinitarian God. That's why it says, let us. So this is God's response to this widespread sin and their building of this tower. Genesis 11, verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of the earth. What takes place here physically in a, in a real way An earthly way of God taking this action and causing uh, mankind to be dispersed, to be divided, to what results then directly from this is the creation of nations. Now you have people that speak different languages, so now you have this creation of languages. We see another perspective given in Deuteronomy 32, and this comes from the divine perspective. In other words, the same event that we just that I just brought up and that I just read about is recounted but from a divine perspective as it relates to fallen heavenly beings in Deuteronomy 32, verses 5 to 8. Now, think about this in light of what just took place with the Tower of Babel. Verse 5, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation." Do you thus repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High... So that means a Most High is, is God himself over all other beings. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. The Hebrew word behind that word sons of God is Elohim. That is the gods, and not, not, not ultimate big G God, but little G gods, these are, these are fallen uh, um, divine beings. And so this is a description from that perspective of what took place at Babel. God descends and he says, oh no, 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 this is not happening. And from a human perspective, he changes their language. He drives, the, he divides them and sends them out. And now we see this account in Deuteronomy 32, where it says, Most high gave to the nations their inheritance, where he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. In other words, God was done with them. Very similar, in a sense, to the flood. He didn't kill them all. But he was done with them. He washed his hands of them. He had no more connection to them. He divided them up, sent them off to let them submit themselves, give them over to their own sin, to their own idol worship. You want your idols? Fine. I will divide you up, I will carve you up, and you can go off to do... To worship your own idols. And then to further make the point, the very next verse in Deuteronomy 32 is a connection to the very next chapter in Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel, and in Genesis chapter 12, you have Abraham being called. So as soon as God is done with all of them and says, your sin has grown too great, I'm dividing you up, sending you off, I'm now going to start from scratch with my own guy. And he calls Abraham out, and then we have what ends up becoming the creation of his own people, a separate people, Israel itself. And so uh, in Deuteronomy 32, right after verse 8, where he says um, that the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, and he divided mankind, when you get down to verse 9, it says, but... Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So we see this uh, other vantage point of the exact same event taking place. And all of this is helpful to understand the richness, the depth, the complexity of what God is doing through history, and then how it bears itself out in Acts chapter 2. So... Let me kind of piece this, all this stuff back together again. God's original plan, his Genesis 1 plan, was to have a dedicated people to go and expand his kingdom. And because of sin, over time, in those passages we read, both in Genesis 3 and then leading all the way up then to Genesis 11, because of sin, because of the sin of people, and the fallen sons of God, what happened is we see what, uh, what took place in Genesis chapter 11. Yahweh descended, he confused their language, and he divided the nations. And in Acts chapter 2, we are now on the other side of Christ fulfilling his mission, his gospel mission. He lived a righteous life. He was sacrificed. He descended to the dead. He bound the strong man. He took the keys of death and Hades. He was resurrected. He ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. So in light of what Jesus accomplished, we can follow now the words of Acts chapter 2 and see that After after Christ has reconstituted the 12 in in, uh, Acts 1 with bringing Matthias in, he's now created this foundation of the church. Remember the apostles and the prophets, they're the foundation of the church. And what do we see happen in Acts chapter 2? God descends like divided tongues of fire. He gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then this multitude that represents every nation under heaven, instead of being divided, are coming together. And how does he unite this new people? How does he unite the church? How does this logistically, physically, in reality, in space and in time, how does he do it by each one hearing the language, their native language, and what is it that they're hearing in their native language. Look at Acts uh, chapter 2, verse, I lost track here. Verse 6, and at this, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not all Galileans? Oh, here we go. And and, uh, verse 11, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That is to say they were proclaiming the gospel. They were hearing in their own language everything that Christ had accomplished, and that was uniting them. So the answer, a second answer to the question, what does this mean? It means that God was reversing Babel. Instead of being confused and divided, the nations were united and amazed and perplexed it means that God was gathering the nations. Listen to Isaiah eleven, eleven. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea, in Acts chapter two, he is recovering the remnants of his people from all the earth. And then, in, and then, in, and then in Isaiah sixty-six verses eighteen to nineteen, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Or, put in the language of Acts 2 and verse 12, they will hear them telling our own hear them telling our own tongues the mighty works of God that is what's taking place God is undoing he is reversing babel he is taking back what is rightfully his amen well lastly verses 12 and 13 we get to see what's at stake we see that God Is certainly about glorifying himself, but here's an interesting twist. He's also about glorifying us, his children. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, it says, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This is the stuff we're talking about. This is the mystery of the gospel, of everything that's accomplished over time that came to its fulfillment in Jesus. And then as a result of what Jesus accomplished, the creation of the church and God reclaiming what is his, His original plan to have his own people that expand his kingdom. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. When I asked you the question at the beginning of, do you want to know the hidden secrets that are found in Scripture, this is what I was talking about. It tells us right right here. He makes known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is your job to warn everyone, to teach everyone with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal, to understand these things so that we can be mature and that we can present others mature in Christ. For this we toil, struggling with all of God's energy that he gives us and his powerful works within us. And then also one more reference is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 10. Again, this ties, you're going, to see, you're going to hear the word mature, this ties to the same idea. We're learning these things, we're seeing these things, God. The Holy Spirit is revealing these truths to us about Scripture, not so that we can catalog it in our heads, and so that we can be smarter and more intellectual and more academic Christians, but so that it might bear godly and spiritual fruit in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10 says, yet among the mature... We do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. These are the secret, and this, this is the secret and hidden wisdom of God that's being imparted to you. If you did not already know these things, it is being imparted to you to warn and to teach and to bring others up in spiritual uh, maturity. But even in addition to that, it is for our glory. I mean, that is so humbling. How is this possible that knowing this and sharing this with others is actually even in God's decree here for our own glory? And we know Just like it's saying here, that is consistent with what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 13, is that as far as the rulers of this world, the people, the influencers of this world, the people that make the decisions, people that are in positions of power, media, all the people that kind of decide what's right and what's virtuous within our culture, they think this stuff that we're talking about this morning, that you're hearing about this morning, is foolishness, right? This is dumb to them. This is a waste of time or it's a crutch or something like that. Well, Scripture tells you right here in 1 Corinthians 6 that these very things that are secret and hidden wisdom that even with the mature within our world, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the ruler of this age and of those who are doomed to pass away. So this truth is, is only effective for God's people. And that's why when we see in Acts 2, verse 13, the very people that were right there, they were there. They heard the noise. They're hearing people speak in their native language. They're standing there and watching it take place. And there are still some that say, mockingly, They're filled with new wine. They're drunk. It's no different today. It's just like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where uh, where the rich man is saying, please, 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 send Lazarus back. Send somebody back from the dead to warn my brothers. And what does Jesus say? Though someone rise from the dead. They have Moses and the prophets though someone rise from the dead, they're not going to believe. And that's exactly what's happening here. Though people are filled with the Spirit, though God is reversing Babel right in front of their eyes, though he is uniting them and gathering the nations and uh, uniting their language as a fulfillment of, of centuries, a millennium and a half of of participating in Pentecost and of prophecy, they will still chalk it off as they're just drunk with wine. So we are faced with this decision ourselves. Do we believe it? Do you write it off as coincidence or some other way of not having to deal with the information? Or do we take this to heart and see the richness, the complexity, the depth, and the beauty of what God was doing one time in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost to start the church and to reveal for all of us into perpetuity that we get to read about it because it's been immortalized in scripture that he is reclaiming, that he is gathering his people, and he is back to or is fulfilling the very mission that he started out with which was to have his own people and to expand his kingdom if you are his people it is your job to participate in the expansion of that kingdom and for those whom god has chosen and has revealed this to us through the spirit praise god it is to our own glory let's pray lord god these are big ideas and deep truths. Help us, Lord, to take them to heart, to appreciate the complexity of your scripture, the continuity of Old Testament to New, of the work that you are about, that you have a people, that you have a kingdom, and that you have a job for us to do. May we do our job, and Lord, while it may be to our glory, we, we pray, Lord, that all, anything that we do that might contribute to expanding your kingdom would actually be to your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we commit ourselves. Amen.